In the past here at this church, I've shared bits and pieces of my personal testimony, and I think it's a fitting time to share a bit more. I didn't become a Christian until my freshman year of college. I had little knowledge, but I was growing in the basics, and I distinctly remember a time when I decided to share the little that I did know with a, a Hindu friend of mine, and it didn't go well. He turned the tables on me, challenged everything I believed. I had no response. I didn't know anything. I just knew the basics. I was a brand new believer. And it let me have an intellectual crisis with the faith. I still believed, but I was searching for answers. Is this true? Is the Bible true? Is the Bible even real? Was Jesus even real? Did he exist? Does does the faith make sense? I have no problem believing in the supernatural, but I didn't want to waste my time with a fairy tale. I remained a bit confused for a month or two. And it wasn't until Easter, my first Easter as a believer, so I guess it would have been uh, 2002, that my pastor preached a sermon on the resurrection. Specifically, he preached on the evidences for the resurrection. It's such an unbelievable belief that Jesus rose from the dead, but when you study the, the scriptures and the facts of history, it's the only explanation that makes sense. And I remember how that sermon really encouraged me and strengthened my faith. Help me realize that the faith is reasonable, it is reliable, it does make sense. And that's what you would expect, after all, if it's true, if this is the truth, it it should make sense, it should fit the facts of history. Now, I still don't believe that evidence creates faith. The evidence for the faith can start a faith, per se. I firmly agree with Augustine who said, Seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Faith comes first, a submission of the heart and the will to Christ as Lord. Only then will your eyes be open to understand the truth. But from the starting point of a, a childlike faith, growing in the knowledge of the truth will only strengthen and solidify that faith. Such growth, in turn, enables you to weather the storms of life and the attacks on the faith. Picture a, a house right on the beach, on the sand, versus one up on a cliff. And where would you want to be in a storm? As new believers, it's like we all start off on that beach, on the sand. And that's okay, you got to start somewhere. But you don't want to stay there too long, weak and and shallow in the faith, because eventually a storm will come, and you're more likely to get tossed to and fro and, and stumble, like I was. But as you grow in the faith and in the knowledge of Christ, you move up that cliff into firm ground. And the storm will still come, you may get rained on, but you won't be swept out to sea. And God wants us to grow in knowledge and maturity in the faith. Do you remember Ephesians 4? It speaks of how God gave to the church pastors and teachers and others. Why? I'll read for you Ephesians 4, 12 and following. He gave these men for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. It's a familiar passage reminding us that God wants us to, to grow up, to not be childlike in the faith for too long, but to grow up into maturity in, in Christ-likeness. Why? So that when attacks come, and they inevitably will, 
you would not be so easily stumbled and sidelined in your race. You ever watch the Discovery Channel and you see those critical documentaries like the Bible isn't real, Jesus never existed? Probably seen something like that. Does that stumble you? Does it make you doubt just a little? Does it sap some of your passion for the Lord when you hear things like that? It shouldn't. Your faith should be strong enough to weather such attacks on the faith. And God has given the church pastors and teachers to help shore up your faith that you wouldn't so easily be taken down. And that's what we've been doing recently together, starting last week, seeking to shore up your faith, specifically when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. Not long ago, we came to the end of Mark's gospel. been going through verse by verse of Mark. But before we finish, he concludes with the resurrection. Before we leave Mark, though, I wanted to give you some bonus sermons on the reality of the resurrection to help build up your faith. So we've been doing our very own study on some of the evidences for Christ's resurrection, that it is true, that it did happen. It's something I want you to see for yourselves. From a starting point of faith, these evidences can build up your understanding of the truth. And maybe that's what some of you need right now, like I once did. After all, as you grow firm in your understanding and conviction that the resurrection is true, it eliminates all difficulties with the Bible. I mean, just think, if God is able to raise someone from the dead, and he did so with Jesus, then it's not hard to believe he flooded the earth in judgment or created the world with a word. It's all within his power and his purpose to do so. So that's what we've been up to starting last week here at the tail end of Mark's gospel. Some extra sermons to equip you with some knowledge on the reality of the resurrection. And I know these messages sound a little bit more like college lectures than sermons per se, but you know, every now and then that's what you need to go back to study the truth and to grow in that knowledge. Without further ado, let's jump back into this study. And in case you weren't here last time, I will reset this up for you, our reproach, how we're approaching this subject. We're trying to build the case for the reality of the resurrection, even though we already believe. Along these lines, we've been aiming to first establish three basic facts of history, facts to which even most critics assent to. Number one, that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Number two, the disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. And number three, opponents like James and Paul were transformed. The tomb of Jesus was empty. The disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. And opponents like James and Paul were transformed. These are our baseline facts that even unbelieving critics assent to. But how are these facts of history explained? There are many who just refuse to accept the notion of Christ's resurrection, because that would mean he's Lord and they can't have that. So they try and come up with numerous theories to make sense of these basic facts of history. But upon examination, their theories all fall helplessly short, as we saw last time. They cannot account for the facts that they themselves admit. In reality, there's only one explanation that accounts for everything we know from Scripture and from history, that Jesus truly rose from the dead. And in this realization, or for you, this confirmation, I hope the knowledge of it equips and it strengthens and builds up your own faith and your conviction. Well, last time we spent all of our time with fact number one, that the tomb was really empty. 
And it's, it's not disputed. His tomb was empty. This is a plain fact of history that even a majority of critics assent to, like we learned last time. But then the question really is, okay, empty tomb, big deal. How do you account for the empty tomb? Where did his body go? Skeptics have proposed that the disciples stole the body or the women found the wrong tomb. Or maybe Jesus didn't really die. He merely swooned and appeared dead. But as we examine, these theories all fall flat on their faces and they just don't account for any of the facts that we know. Already we, we saw last time there's only one explanation for the empty tomb. Like the angel said to the woman, he is not here, he's risen. The tomb was empty because Jesus rose. You can download last week's sermon to get more on the empty tomb. It's really just the beginning though because now we press on. We're adding in fact number two, which only makes the case for the resurrection even stronger. Number two, the disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. Somehow you have to account for the fact that at the very least, these, this group of men, they sure believe Jesus rose and appeared to them. That was their contention. The ancient testimony, it's too clear, too consistent, too numerous to brush off. These men, the disciples, the apostles, they were real historical figures who gave their entire lives over to preaching the resurrected Christ. That can't be denied, nor can their results. The early church came from somewhere. Thousands upon thousands of Jews and Gentiles. Very early on, they came to believe in Jesus and his resurrection. So where did they get that idea? And where did they get this power come from that could transform so many people in a hostile environment to believe in him? Well, let's, let's start off by establishing just how early we have an apostolic record of the resurrection, a witness of the resurrection. I'll read for you a, fa- a familiar passage read last week as well. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, where Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Kephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, meaning dying. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. You recall this, Paul's recollection of Christ's resurrection and his appearances. Paul wrote this around A.D. 55, this letter to the Corinthians. But most accept that Paul here, he's reciting an ancient creed that captured the basics of the gospel that developed very early on. This is very creedal. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he rose on the third day and appeared to a bunch of people. This creed, this formula that he's reciting goes back much earlier than A.D. 55. How early? Well, notice Paul says here that what he's saying, it just matches that which he received. He says in verse 3, 1 through 3. He received this from someone at some time as well. When and whom is he talking about? Well, most likely this is referring to when Paul met with Peter and James shortly after his conversion. I'm not sure if you remember this. Paul, he was converted directly apart from any influence of the, uh, of the apostles, directly by the Lord. And he grew in the faith without talking to any of the apostles. This comes from his testimony, Galatians chapter 1. It wasn't until 
three years later that he finally went to Jerusalem and talked to the apostles. There he met Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. During that time, they gave him further instruction in the faith. They also passed on to him this creed of, of the, the basic gospel and the resurrection appearances primarily. They, they told him about all these resurrection appearances, both, uh, bolstering his faith. And notice Paul lists both Peter and James by name in his list. So although the point is this, although Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around AD 55, it comes from testimony that became a creed just three to five years after the crucifixion and resurrection. So the point is, what he recites here, it is actually extremely early testimony to what the apostles saw. And they all sang the same tune. From the very beginning, they were claiming that they saw the risen Lord, that he rose, that he appeared to them. And they, therefore, gave up everything, their entire lives, to preach that resurrection. Now, you recall the testimony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The disciples speak directly about witnessing the Lord. This is this, They're writing this. Remember, Jesus isn't writing this down. This is their testimony. So you have Matthew 28. Jesus appears to this group of women. They see him with joy. They cling to his feet. They worship him. Luke 24, Jesus appears, the risen Jesus, to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He explains the scriptures to them. He breaks bread with them. Later in that same chapter, he appears to the rest of the disciples as they're gathered in the upper room. And at first they're afraid, but he assures them he's very real. And he's risen. He lets them see his hands and feet, touch them. To this, John's gospel adds how Thomas wasn't there at first. Remember that? And so later they told Thomas, hey, we've seen the risen Lord. But Thomas didn't believe. But shortly thereafter, Jesus appeared again to all of them, Thomas included, showed him his hands and feet again, and Thomas believed. That's when he confessed Jesus as his Lord and his God, John 20, 28. There are many more appearances like this recorded in the Gospels. But the point is this, it's crystal clear from the biblical witness that the disciples, at the very least, they sure believed Jesus rose. They sure believed he rose and he appeared to them. That's, that's just our starting point, to establish a basic fact. Now, I still want you to think about the book of Acts. In fact, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're starting by simply building the, the record of the apostles' testimony of the resurrection. And the book of Acts captures their testimony and that record in a very special way. The book of Acts is special because it was written almost certainly before A.D. 60. That's because the book, if you might remember, it ends with the Apostle Paul, who's like the main character. He's in prison in Rome the first time awaiting trial. And that almost without doubt, that's because Paul was still alive when Luke was writing Luke and Acts. So Acts, it's a very early record, historical document of the early church, the history of the early church. It's what it's about. Luke himself tells us that he compiled his account by interviewing all these witnesses, all the people who lived and saw and spoke with Jesus and so forth. So let's just take a look at this extremely early account of the church coming from eyewitnesses to the Lord Jesus. And what's especially noteworthy in the book of Acts is that every major sermon features the resurrection of Christ. The book of Acts is basically the testimony of the apostles of Jesus and his resurrection. It's, it's one of the themes. 
The resurrection is clearly the spark that ignited the fire of the early church. There would be no early church if it were not for at least a belief in the resurrection. The resurrection is what transformed the disciples from cowards to lions. And through them, countless others were transformed, coming to really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So let's look at a few verses. Starts off chapter 1, verse 3. Luke reminds us of the fact of the resurrection where he says, To these he, Jesus, also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So the book begins with a summary of Christ's resurrection appearances. After this, you recall, he ascends into heaven. But the apostles, they're left behind. And what do they do? It becomes their driving passion in life after Jesus ascends to do one thing. Just tell everybody Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead to share the gospel, the good news. And so right away, their very first concern is to replace Judas Iscariot with another guy, a disciple who's been with them from the beginning. Why are they so concerned? Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. They say, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. See, these guys, they've they've just been transformed by seeing the risen Christ. And it's clear, their mission from the very beginning, that it's going to guide everything they do. We must witness of his resurrection. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It's their witness of his resurrection. And that's everything. If he rose, it's everything. You got everything, right? And if he didn't rise, you have nothing. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. Peter's first sermon. Realize it's actually all about the resurrection. Just briefly, he says in chapter 2, verse 24, as he's preaching, after they killed Jesus, he says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter then quotes scripture where David speaks of the Christ. And Peter notes how David, verse 31 looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. You see, that this is just what they do now. They're all witnesses. Right away, they're preaching, they're testifying Jesus rose. This is their new job in life. Chapter 3 continues. Peter preaches again. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Again, he convicts the crowd. He says, 3.15, But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. All this bold preaching right off the gates caught the attention of the religious leaders, the same people who killed Jesus. And so look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests... And the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. For these leaders, this is what they're trying to avoid. Yet, as verse 4 says, there were already 5,000 believers. Where'd they come from? Preaching of the apostles and the resurrection. So they decided to put the apostles on trial. But what do they do? They, they can't help it. They're going to continue to witness, even when they're arrested and put on trial. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. 
Now they're defending themselves. And Peter preaches and says, 4.10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health, as he was explaining the healing he performed. Even in his defense, he can't help but testify, you killed him, but God raised him. Look at 4.13. It says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. These guys, these are like fishermen. They have no Bible degrees or they're not scholars. Where did they get this knowledge, this boldness in preaching? Where did this come from? It caught them off guard. These leaders, they thought they had won. I mean, they killed Jesus. They scattered his disciples. They hadn't heard from these guys in 40 days. They thought it's all over. But now they're all back, and they're transformed, and they're boldly preaching that Jesus rose. They resolve, though, to command the apostles to stop speaking in his name. Remember verse 18, or verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. This comes from Peter. This is the guy just a few weeks before, you know, a couple months before. He had totally denied Jesus three times, ran away for his life, fearing for his own life. But now just a couple months later, he's like a lion that cannot be caged. He was transformed by what he heard and saw, namely the risen Lord. This boldness continues in chapter 5. One more verse here. One more. Look at Acts 5, verse 28. They get him back again. They, the leaders say to them, Hey, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. He says, verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. They've already filled Jerusalem with this teaching, and they're, they're not going to stop. Go ahead, arrest him, kill him. They're not going to stop. How do you explain this? Do you see, though, how it's everywhere in the book of Acts? Just keep reading. You see Peter's preaching, Paul's preaching. The resurrection is everywhere. And it's true. They can't help themselves. That They can't stop. They can't stop speaking about what they've seen and heard. And look, if it's true, that's what you'd expect, right? I mean, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that's how you explain this. They have seen something that is so unbelievable, yet it's true, and they're transformed by it. How else do you explain how they give their lives over to this preaching? So here we have a record. This is a very early record of people alive at the time of Christ giving eyewitness testimony to his resurrection. This much is fact. But now we turn to the next question, what What do you make of this? What do you think of their account, their testimony, their record? Some people, again, they they can't even accept the possibility of resurrection. So they take the easy way out, they think, and claim the Bible, it's not even real, it's not reliable, it's not even true. This is an old myth, this Bible, it's a legend. The Bible's not reliable, they say. I actually have a relative who believes this. She really thinks Christianity was invented in the 2nd or 3rd centuries, as opposed to the time of Christ. Invented by people for the sake of power. The church is trying to grab power. 
It's all made up. Granted, there's not a shred of evidence for this and nothing but a mountain of evidence against this. But a lot of people like to believe that because it's so easy. With one fell swoop, you can just totally disregard all the claims of Christianity without looking into it. Just eh, It's not even real. It's just fake. It's a, a story. It's a perfect way to quiet your nagging conscience with the least amount of effort. Just say it's all made up. But this is intellectually dishonest. And talk about believing against the evidence. With the New Testament, the New Testament came from somewhere. We have a historically proven early record from the first century of Christ, most within decades of his life. New Testament didn't just show up in a vacuum. These are real historical writings whose date can be placed back by thousands of and thousands of ancient manuscripts to the, the days after Christ. And also, again, I mentioned before, think about the existence of the church itself. Where did the church come from? How do you explain the early church's rise to power from nothing in a hostile environment? I mean, look, you have sources outside the Bible claiming, look, Christians were popping up all over the place in that first century and the years after Jesus, and they believed in his resurrection. You can't debate with history that thousands believed in Jesus and his resurrection. Their lives were transformed by this, and they were willing to die for this belief. This belief persisted despite attempts to eradicate it by the Roman Empire. And within just a couple hundred years, these Christians managed to peacefully conquer the Roman Empire, the most powerful force at the time. Think about that. How, how is that possible? That's, that's a fact of history. You can't argue with that. How did that happen? Where did that come from? You must explain. Well, like last week at this point, we now want to turn and shift a little bit and, and start by considering how those in the world really try and explain away these facts. Last week, fact number one, the tomb was empty. Now we're looking at fact number two, that the disciples, they sure believed he rose and appeared to them. Okay, how are you going to explain that? And, and, the, and the early church that followed, how do you account for this in history? Well, at this point, we can identify three basic options. Option one, the disciples were deceivers. The disciples were deceivers. Jesus never rose, and the apostles, they made the whole thing up. Option two, the disciples were deceived. They were deceived. Jesus never rose, but somehow they came to believe he did, but he still didn't rise. Or option number three, Jesus truly rose from the dead and appeared to them. All three of these are logical possibilities, so they all must be contended with, including the resurrection. You cannot just de facto say that's not possible. If God is real, it, it is possible. So let's spend a little time here and just cycle through these theories that some give. How do you explain it? How do you explain the testimony, the lives, and the effects of the apostles in the early church? We'll start with number one. The disciples were deceivers. So I want to say they're, they're deceivers. Again, some skeptics absolutely refuse to accept that Jesus truly rose from the dead. So to explain away the clear and consistent testimony of the apostles, they claim they're all just liars. They all made it up. This is the conspiracy theory option, that after Jesus died, the remaining disciples, they kind of gathered together, and they all agreed to create this story of the resurrection. This means, of course, Jesus didn't really rise. 
They never really saw him alive from the dead, but it's all a big lie, fabricated so that they could start the church. Okay, well, first you should note this theory, it's based off of zero positive evidence, meaning there's not like an ancient document where one of the apostles cracks under the pressure and says, you know what, we all made it up, it was all a lie. There's nothing like that. There's not a single testimony anywhere hinting that they made this up. And to the contrary, there's nothing but a mountain of negative evidence that tears this theory apart. Start by thinking about their motive. Put yourself in their shoes. Christ is dead, and he hasn't raised. They had no motive to make up a story of his resurrection. Just think, what did they gain? When people create such deceptions, it's always for the sake of gain. That's why they have to lie. They're trying to get something out of it. What did these guys gain? Nothing. There's no money involved. They were all dirt poor for their entire lives. Most of the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. That was the poorest church around. There's no money. What about fame? Were they like ancient rock stars? Well, yeah, I guess a lot of people came to know their names, but not in a good way. It just meant more people hated them and wanted to kill them. It's usually not the type of fame people seek. There's literally literally nothing in this Christ movement that benefited them from an earthly perspective. All they received for preaching Christ's resurrection was ridicule, mockery, persecution, beating, imprisonment, and ultimately death. You think they would have made up a better story that would have benefited them a little bit more. And speaking of which, if you're going to make up a story, why not simply claim that Jesus rose spiritually? It's so much easier to maintain that he just rose spiritually. Why this insistence that he physically, bodily rose from the dead? That's hard. And then they go on and say that there are still 500 witnesses living that you can go and ask pretty much, that they saw him alive physically. That's a tough claim if you're making it up. Why would you say that? It's like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Back in the day, their prophets predicted that Jesus would return visibly in 1914. But when he didn't come visibly, they changed their tune. Like, oh, no, he came, he came spiritually. That's how you do it. If you're going to make up a lie, you go the spiritual route, not the physical route. Also, if you're making this up, why don't they include anything that appeals to the flesh? You know, Joseph Smith had his polygamy. Very convenient for him. Islam has their 72 virgins. Very appealing for the males, at least. But there's nothing in the New Testament that appeals to the flesh. There's nothing. The apostles, they maintain the strict godliness and righteousness of Christ in their preaching. Nothing they said benefited them in this life. So they have no motive to fabricate a resurrection story. They didn't gain anything from it. Neither did their followers. They didn't get anything. It just doesn't fit the bill for a fabrication. In fact, to the contrary, when you study the Bible closely, their record, there's so many clear indicators that what you're reading is an authentic eyewitness testimony. You know, one way to tell if a historical work is authentic is if it includes damning information. In other words, when people make up a story, they they make themselves look good. They don't include all the bad negative parts of the story. They try and make themselves look good. But if you read an account and it includes lots of information that makes a person look bad who's writing it, it's usually true. It's likely true. Pretty common sense way of understanding it. We look at the Gospels. 
they contain tons of this embarrassing information in regards to the apostles. For example, go back to the cross. What do these guys do? They all deny Jesus and run away. That makes them look terrible, especially Peter, who's like their leader. Then Jesus, the hero of the story, he dies in the most shameful and pathetic way possible back then, via crucifixion. Okay, then Jesus rises. But to whom does he appear first? First witnesses. It's a group of women. That's incredibly significant because in Jewish culture back then, the testimony of women was, sadly, worthless. Their testimony wasn't even accepted in a court of law. So from a Jewish perspective and for a Jewish audience, this would be the last thing they would have made up, that the first witnesses were a group of women. It would have destroyed the reliability and credibility of their own story, and Jewish audience would never have accepted it. Don't forget, Luke 24:11, the apostles themselves did not believe the testimony of the women when they first came and said, we've seen the risen Lord. Even the apostles rejected the testimony of the women. Speaking of the apostles, another damning detail is their own unbelief. You see this in the Gospels at times. And at first, the apostles themselves did not believe that Jesus truly rose. Why would you ever make that up or include that? Why You're trying to sell this story out. You're trying to pass this law off as true. Why would you ever include something that you are undercutting your own claim? You're suggesting doubt that some of the guys didn't believe. That's, that's crazy. Matthew 28, 17 says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. That's nearly the last verse in Matthew after the resurrection. And why would you include that some were still doubtful? Do you see, though, how that rings authentic? Indeed, these details, they do make the apostles look foolish and dumb. But remember, these are the guys telling the story. This isn't Jesus writing this down. He didn't write anything down. This is the apostles writing the New Testament. This is their story. So if they made this up, they're making themselves look terrible. And they get nothing from it. You see, this theory that the disciples invented the resurrection, it it just doesn't add up. And a final note, it fails to account for the empty tomb. Remember, in this little study we're doing, any viable theory must account for all the facts of history. And this theory is trying to account for number two, that the disciples sure believe the apostles rose, or that Christ rose and appeared to them. But in so doing, it abandons any explanation for fact number one, the reality of the empty tomb. If the disciples are making this all up, then Jesus didn't rise. But then how do they account for the empty tomb? Like we saw last week get that sermon, all those theories really fall short. Of course, hand-in-hand with the theory that the disciples invented the resurrection story is the theory that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Right? That's that's got to make sense. They stole his body, they hid it away, and then they they made up the story that he really rose from the dead. But just consider how this falls apart even more than we've already seen. Like we just read in the book of Acts, all the apostles, without exception, plus many more disciples— They gave up their entire lives to preach Jesus and his resurrection. They gave up everything. They really believed and they practiced what they preached. Their lives were consistent with what they believed. Such that they were all willing to suffer great loss for the sake of Jesus, a resurrected Jesus. They were willing to suffer persecution, hardship, hunger, poverty, constant toil, rejection, imprisonment, ultimately death. All of them. Can you explain that level of belief 
and devotion. If they all know, it's a lie. They're all making this up. You can't. You know that without exception, all the apostles except the, well, I guess I could say one exception, the apostle John who died in exile, all the apostles were otherwise martyred for their faith in Christ and his resurrection. You know that? Let me read you the list from the early church. What happened to the 11 after Christ left? The early church, Simon Peter, crucified upside down. James, the half-brother of Jesus, stoned and clubbed to death. Andrew, crucified. Matthew, killed by the sword. James, son of Alphaeus, crucified. Philip, crucified. Simon, crucified. Thaddeus, impaled by arrows. Thomas, killed by the spear thrust. Bartholomew, crucified. James, son of Zebedee, killed by the sword. And then the Apostle Paul, of course, was beheaded. Not one of them cracked under the pressure. Not one of them threw in the towel and said, look, we're just making this up. None of them chose the easy life. How do you explain this? Especially given the fact that they all were cowards before Jesus died. The fact of the matter is, if they all made it up, they knew Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And especially if they stole the body, they would have proof positive that Jesus himself was a phony. He was a liar. He was a false messiah. But then, would that lead them to give their entire lives over to claiming he rose when they gained nothing? And they all would die for it? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. To this, some will say, yeah, but even, look, radical Muslims, they will take their faith to the grave, right? Yes, that's true, but they do that because they really believe they will be rewarded. No one, though, no one's giving up their lives for something they know is a lie. No one's going to do that for something they have proof is not true. So you see, the apostles, their lives, their transformation, and then the existence of the early church, despite persecution, is profound testimony to the reality of the resurrection. This was no lie. And at the very least, the theory, the first theory that the apostles were deceivers simply doesn't account for any of the facts, does not explain anything we know. Now, you might be interested to know how liberal skeptics, they've come to the same conclusion. It's really fascinating to, to study how all these theories develop over the years. A new theory pops up to try and explain away the resurrection. Everyone jumps on the bandwagon, but then they cannibalize themselves and the theory is abandoned. So most liberal scholars today have abandoned the theory that the disciples were deceivers. But the next theory that we'll study now can be described as like the most recent flavor of the week for liberal skeptics. This will be brief, but number two, the disciples were deceived. Second option. First, they were deceivers. They lied. Second, how about the disciples were deceived? Because look, it's very hard to argue with the sincerity and the commitment of the apostles and the early church. They persevered. They stuck by their claims unto death. To think they knew it was all a lie just doesn't fit what we know. It doesn't make any sense. So the latest trend among liberal scholars is to give these guys the benefit of the doubt and to say they weren't making it up. They, they really believed. They really believed Jesus rose. They were somehow deceived into thinking he rose. And that would explain it, right? That would explain their passion, their preaching, that they really believed it all was true. Somehow they were tricked. Okay, how were they tricked? Who tricked them? There's no one with any motive or means to do so. So believe it or not, Skeptics today, they've opted for what is known as the mass hallucination 
theory. That's real. It's actually popular. They suggest that the disciples all hallucinated seeing the risen Jesus and they believed and they started the church. Now, hallucinations can be real. Drug users know them well. There's also examples of people going through intense grief over the loss of a loved one. They'll hallucinate seeing their loved one. And so this has led critics to suggest that the apostles were so grief-struck over the loss of Christ that they hallucinated seeing him alive. It started with Peter, they say, who was the most hurt, and he believed he saw Jesus, and he told the other disciples and led them to have a group hallucination, a mass hallucination. Now, when you hear this, you probably laugh to yourself a bit and disregard it, and I don't blame you. But from their perspective, when you hear someone claim they saw a ghost, are you more likely to believe them or think they're crazy, they're on drugs, they hallucinated? What, what are you more likely to believe? See, we're skeptical too. That's fine. But there's just no basis whatsoever for believing that the apostles hallucinated in seeing Jesus. And I'm sure you guys can all pick this apart by yourselves, but just because we're doing this study, I'll help you. It's brief, but look, the first glaring problem is that the hallucinations, or rather hallucinations are, they're subjective, meaning no two people see the same thing. No two people have the same experience. If we were dealing with just one person, one time, one place, then maybe we could uh, use hallucination to explain him claiming to see a risen Lord. But we're not. We're talking about many different people in different times, different places, but they all claim to to see the same thing, the same experience. And look, there's no such thing as a group hallucination. Everyone sees the same thing, has the same experience. So this cannot explain all the disciples in that upper room. They see the same Jesus. They hear the same Jesus. They touch the same Jesus. Then you have different people at different times, different places, 100 miles away, even 500 people at once claiming to see the risen Lord. Are they all hallucinating? So the hallucination theory can't explain the diversity of witnesses, can't explain the duration of these witnesses. A hallucination lasts what? A matter of minutes, a couple hours. These are people claiming to see the risen Lord over a period of 40 days. It's not like they describe this like a dream, too. They were awake. They were aware when they saw him, fully alert. In fact, when they first saw Jesus, they were frightened. They thought they were seeing a spirit at first, but Jesus proved otherwise. Luke 24, 38 says, Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then drive it home. Remember, he ate a piece of fish in front of them. That's not how hallucinations act. Jesus did this, though, to prove he was no apparition. Hallucination theory just doesn't, it ignores all the facts that we have. It, It just doesn't fit. And to finish it off, to bury this theory away, go back to fact number one, the empty tomb. Okay, now you want to claim the disciples, they didn't steal the body. They weren't liars. They somehow believed, though, that Jesus rose. They hallucinated. That for sure means they didn't steal the body, so how do you account for the empty tomb? If the disciples merely hallucinated, all the religious leaders had to do was go march to the tomb of Jesus, take his body out, and say, you know, he's still dead. So somehow you have the coincidence that his tomb is magically empty at the same time they have this crazy hallucination. How do you account for that? And even more so, next week we'll come back, we'll finish up with fact number three, which is the transformation of Paul. That is huge. This is a guy who hated Christ. 
But this hallucination theory can't account for Paul's conversion. What was Paul hallucinating to? He claimed to see the risen Lord, but he wasn't grieving. He was not in a state of grief. So how did he have that hallucination? He hated Jesus. He had no expectation of seeing Jesus. He had no reason to invent an appearance. He was a hostile witness that was radically transformed. And this hallucination theory is buried by the conversion of Paul and James, the brother of Jesus. And so once again, we find that all these theories otherwise, they're internally inconsistent and they totally fail to answer for the other facts. They all make one tiny step forward and then two giant leaps back. We've seen so far the reality of the empty tomb and the fact that the disciples, they all believed Jesus rose from the dead. They really believed. And even with just these two facts, no other explanation comes close to holding up. And especially when we add in the fact of Paul's conversion next week, you'll see the case for the reality of the resurrection. It's airtight. There is no other answer or explanation that accounts for all the facts of scripture and history other than that Jesus truly rose. He really rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. That transformed them, gave them the boldness to preach his resurrection such that they would give their own lives and they would lay the foundation of the church in their own blood. They believed what they saw because they did see Jesus alive from the dead. And then afterwards, they lived like it was true. And that's a huge point. They lived like it was true. And I pray that might be true for us as well, that we live like it's true. Next week, we'll come back. We'll finish the study off by considering the third fact, Paul's conversion. That's a big deal. But already, I hope your, your own faith and your conviction is strengthened as you grow in the knowledge of the truth. Jesus rose. It's true. I encourage you to believe that it's true and then to live like it's true. I'll take a bet and say that most, if not all of you, you already came here this morning already believing Jesus rose. Not surprising, not shocking to you. You've come to that place of faith. You believe that, good, that he really rose from the dead. That's good. But do you really live like that's true? Think about how that should change your life, your priorities, your goals. You have to realize if the resurrection is true, it's all true. God is true. His word is true. His will is true. It means Christ's atoning death is true. He really came and died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. That you must believe in him to be saved. That's true. It really means Jesus is the pearl of great price, worth giving up everything to acquire. He is worth laying down your life to follow him. Because in him, you you receive new and everlasting life. That's true. It also means those who reject him, be it by word or deed, they themselves will be rejected and judged. That's true as well all true if he rose you believe he rose you believe everything else do you live like it's true i pray as your faith is built up and strengthened so is your discipleship your conviction to live like it's true this means heeding all that god tells you and primarily primarily this means now if it's true now you have to tell others it's on you now you now become his witnesses. Do you realize that? If this is true, you're you're in their boat. You may not have seen him with your eyes and heard him with your ears, but you've received their testimony and you say you believe, don't you? 
Now you're a witness. You must now preach the gospel, like 1 Corinthians 15 said. Just merely doing what? Telling others what you received. That Jesus died according to the scriptures for the forgiveness of our sins, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day. People need that good news of the gospel, do they not? They're perishing, their lives are being destroyed. But if Jesus rose and you have good news yourself, you can't sit on that information. That just calls in the question, do you really, do you really believe? Do you really believe? But if you do, now you must testify. The apostles, they're gone, but their testimony isn't. We are their spiritual descendants. And the only question is, who's going to share it? Who's going to continue their work, pick up the baton, and be the next generation of witnesses to the risen Lord? That it's true. God has made you now his witnesses of the resurrection to the ends of the earth. After all, are, are not we the church today? Are, are not we in a way living proof of the reality of the resurrection? Here we are, spiritual descendants of the apostles. Of course, Christ the cornerstone, but where did we come from? How did we get here? You go back, you study, only because Jesus rose. He truly rose. That's how it started. That's how we're here. And now we must tell others. We must be like the apostles where we can't help but tell others. doesn't matter what you're going to do to us. You can imprison us too. We can't stop speaking about what we know to be true. I pray that's for you as well. Do you believe it's true? And then be sure as you leave to live like it's true. Like the apostles, do your part by God's grace to turn this world upside down through the power of Christ's resurrection as you proclaim it to a lost and dying world. We'll come back next week. We'll further build up that conviction, hopefully only to further develop our lives as his witnesses. Let's pray. Your great God in heaven, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, you want us to go in grace and knowledge and truth and wisdom. Sometimes we need to let your word, your word penetrate our hearts and affect our will. Sometimes we need instruction. Sometimes we need to study your word and its truths and plumb the depths as best we can. And that's that's been our goal this morning. We need to get to know your word inside and out, the testimony you've left behind. We need to see how strong it is that though many assaults come against it, its foundation is sure. It cannot fall or falter. It is the only explanation of the world as we know it. We look at the stars. We look at the heavens and know you are the creator. It is evident within us. We look at the church and our, our own transformed lives and we see the power of Christ still alive today. Your word holds up. It is true. Strengthen our faith in it. That's what we need, Lord. Build us up to know it is true. And as we know, now may we live. Live like this is true. It's changed our lives. It should have. And may we seek to testify to the world. This is their only hope. This is a lost and dying world. And their only hope in this life and the life to come is by turning to this same risen Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and for their own new lives. So may we now boldly leave and testify as we just live our lives that Christ is risen and he's risen indeed. In his name we pray. Amen.